Well, if you want to open up to Revelation 12, uh, I'm going to start, before we read this, kind of just frame it with an illustration. Um, okay, hold on. Okay, before we read Revelation 12, I'm going to tell you this, uh, kind of give an illustration. Um, okay, maybe the kids will be interested in this. Uh does anybody recognize, any of the kids recognize what this is? You can shout it out. Go for rocket it. Ship. Yep, rocket ship, spaceship. Any guess on where this one's going? Rocket ship. Yeah, it's a rocket ship. It's going into space it, yeah, it's going into space. Any guesses? Yeah, this, this one was actually, the goal was to go to the moon. But this, they all looked uh, about the same, except for they put different names on it. This is uh, not one that actually reaches the moon. This is later on. This is uh, this is Apollo 13, this particular rocket ship. So Apollo 11 was the one that got here, so two later. Um, and I'm going to tell you an illustration here, um, kind of a story, and then I'll kind of connect it to this passage here. <laughs> yes, it's a rocket ship. All right, this little um, cir- circle looks kind of like a uh, bobber. Uh, that you fish with, except it's quite large. And they actually dropped this bobber. Uh, it's, it was filled with oxygen, liquid oxygen, and they dropped it. It fell two inches, so, you know, that much. And that actually ended up, series of events, causing an explosion. This exploded um, when they were in space. This is what exploded on Apollo 13. Um, and I kind of told my wife I'm going to use this illustration and she said shorten it because I explained all the five different you know steps that led to this exploding but if you're interested in that I'll tell you after (laughs) but anyways this ended up exploding Um, and the problem is that the oxygen was both what they breathed and how they generated power so it was actually a pretty bad deal so they're in space and they had an explosion and now they don't have enough oxygen um now, the story I want to get at is actually related to something else. Um, they did get home safely, just if you didn't know that. In the end, they, f- they were able to conserve enough, and they lived in the lunar module, and eventually they got, they got back home. But whenever the oxygen exploded, um, when they vent gases into space, they freeze. And so... Because they're going along at a constant speed, they're not speeding up at this time when it exploded, there's just all this basically little ice crystals floating around the spaceship that looked like this, um, except a lot of them. And that's actually how they knew that it was leaking, um, was they saw all these little ice crystals. And one at one point, two of the astronauts were looking out the window, and they were arguing uh, about what star was what. Oh, that star is, you know, oh, that's clearly... Vega or something like that. And the other one's like, no, that's not, that can't be Vega for this reason, that reason. And then the one, the third astronaut, there's three of them, said that's not any star, that's ice. And the problem was is that they actually used the stars to check the computers. So they used the stars to make sure that they were on target. And so now they were in space, they didn't have enough oxygen, um, they had to conserve their power a lot because they they used that oxygen to burn to create their power. And they didn't know how to check the computers. 
because of all this dust surrounding them that looked like stars in the sunlight. And they were perplexed. So they didn't know, do we really know where we are for sure? Because they had to, basically to re-enter the atmosphere, the they had to enter at just the right degrees or they would either not fully enter or the, and skip out or they would burn up. They had to enter just at, like I think it was like six and a half degrees. So they had to know precisely where they were and they used the stars to double check the computers. This is in 1970, so the computers are not great computers. So basically, they're stuck. Um, they're really confused. What are we going to do? How are we going to make sure we know where we are, that we're actually where we think we are? Because this ice looks like stars, and can we be certain? Because we have to get it just right. So all this is to kind of get to this uh, final point. So they there's all, there's this... There's not just the three guys in space. There's this huge team in Houston. You know, they always say, Houston, we've got a problem, or Houston, you know, the Eagles landed or whatever. So there's all, all these hundreds of scientists in, down in Houston trying to figure out how are we going to figure out where they are. And it took them quite a long time to realize something quite obvious that um, it's kind of funny how we can do that as human beings, not see the obvious um, that we have to kind of think out of the box sometimes to even see the obvious. And the obvious was to align themselves with the sun. The sun was the biggest, brightest star, and it you couldn't confuse a piece of ice for the sun. <laughs> and so they were just so used to using the stars, they forgot about the sun. And actually, the way they remembered it is one guy in Nishin Control said, I don't know what we're going to do. The only thing bright enough now um, to to align it to is the sun. As he said, like in desperation, like there's nothing else we can see out there except for the sun. And like, oh yeah, why don't we just use the sun? <laughs> and the reason I tell this story is I thought it's kind of a good illustration of like the Christian life in a way. It's like we can get used to thinking about all these little things that are that can help align us, you know, in a sense, like other people's counsel, and um, there's lots of factors, things we can think about. and But we don't want to miss the obvious and the big thing, which is the Son, Jesus, right? It's And it's kind of amazing how they literally had the sun shining right, you know, super bright on their faces, but they couldn't think, what star are we going to be able to see? <laughs> and we can kind of do that, you know, where we really forget just, there's Jesus, He's shining right there, you know, the brightest, the clearest, brightest thing throughout, you know, the Bible, but also throughout history, you know, Christ. We even date, have our dates aligned to his birth, you know, it's pretty amazing. And that's kind of what I want to do today as we read through Revelation 12, is just look at Jesus. Just remember and just look like, oh, God, don't forget about Christ. There he is. He's shining right there through the scripture, but also through history. And just look and realign yourself. Just There's not going to be a lot of application. Just look at Jesus. Look what he did. Remember, there he is. And um, it's so obvious that we can kind of forget, right? And lose sight of all the little things going on. And Oh no, this little thing, this little thing, this little thing, this little thing. And then just take time to put it all aside and just look at Christ.
And so that's kind of what is going on here in Revelation 12. So let's read that together. You can, uh, we can turn this off. Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on its head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, she might devour it. he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for time, times and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right. Well, this is a, again, um, as you know, when you get into the book of Revelation, this is the kind of thing you think about, a very vivid uh, story with lots of symbols and um, fantastical elements, but it's communicating, like we've been talking about as we go through Revelation, the centrality of the message is about Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus, or say it another way, the book is called The Revealing of Jesus, um, The Revealing of Jesus Christ. And so in every section, what's helpful is to think about where's Jesus in here? And we saw that even in the letters to the churches, each one of the letters to the churches started out with one of those descriptions of Jesus. He who has the lamp stands in his hand, or he who's out of his mouth comes a sword. You know, it's always starting with a description of Jesus. And as we're getting into more of the symbolic uh, stories where there's these fantastical images, you first want to ask yourself the question, where's Jesus in this? And so that's where we'll start today. Where's Jesus? Well, this one's actually quite easy. Why? What, how does this point us to Jesus? The male child here in the story is Jesus. 
And we know that because it says in verse 5, She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So we know that this is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one who's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Uh, it's a reference to Psalm 2. I will tell the decree of the Lord. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Even Jesus references this when he's talking to the Pharisees about the Messiah is going to be this one who's the son of David and who rules the nations. Jesus is the child that was caught up to heaven right after his resurrection. Um, this is all condensed in this story into one very short section. Jesus um, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's the one who comes down and ultimately you know, saves us, defeats the dragon. Uh, that old serpent is what it, the way it says it. Um, again, this is another Old Testament reference to Jesus even in the first story of the Bible from Genesis where God promises to the woman that her seed, singular, one of her offspring is going to defeat and destroy and you're going to bruise the head of the serpent. Uh, the, the serpent will bruise your heel, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent and that's Christ. Christ is the one who ends up defeating the serpent, in this case, the dragon. And he's God. Come down to earth, just like David was talking about, to win the victory. Remember, one of the things that's a theme in Revelation is this idea of victor, the conqueror. Jesus is the ultimate conqueror here. And so just take a moment to really realize what happened and to think about, once again, a fresh story that Jesus... Slayed the dragon. He conquered. He redeemed a people by defeating sin and death on the cross. That's a pretty amazing, amazing thing. Um, we're something to be very thankful for. And that leads us to the second thing that we kind of already hinted at. Well, who's the dragon? That one's also pretty easy because it says right here in the section 12.9 tells us exactly who the dragon is. The dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. It says the same thing again in Revelation 20. And he sees that the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this dragon is the devil. Now, there's some clues here uh, that this isn't going to be a literal dragon couple clues that we're not talking about Satan becoming a literal big red dragon. It says his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Pretty clear that's not literal. A third of the stars falling onto earth. You know, we would, the whole earth would be consumed um, if it was literally a third of the stars in, in the sky. Um, couple other things that I might just point out to you that may not be obvious. Again, we talked about before that Revelation may, and I think does, have the most allusions to the Old Testament of any New Testament book. And each week when we talk about it, I pretty much have to, 
I could spend the whole time just talking about Old Testament things that come up. And even today, I'm, I'm not really going to talk about the number of days, which is a reference to Daniel 12. I, maybe I'll work that in eventually. Uh, but we could spend the whole time on talking about Daniel 12. And he talks about a time and a times and half a times uh, where there's a, tr- where's a tribulation. And eventually, I think we will get there. I'm going to leave that out for today just for the sake of brevity. But another thing in terms of the dragon, that's an Old Testament illusion, is... is a section here from Ezekiel. I'm going to read to you. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet, and I will cast you to the ground. And on the open field I will fling you and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you. Here in Ezekiel, God calls Pharaoh a dragon that's going to be destroyed. It's kind of an interesting section. Um, Now, what we can say is God is going to defeat all evil. And that's kind of one of the symbols that is is really being portrayed here that one of the truths that we need to take hold of and just remember is that Jesus is really going to defeat the dragon. Jesus is really going to crush the head of the serpent and defeat for once and for all, all sin and death. And in this case, you know, the devil um, and all the effects of that. He's going to destroy the destroyers of the earth as we read in chapter 10. Why is this... Why are we talking about this today? It's important just again just to remember the reality. Look at what Christ has done and just remember it. It reminds me of how Jesus told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. How does it start? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, It starts talking, the whole first section is talking about God, about who God is. Hallowed be your name. Glory be to you, God. And I think part of that is actually something that we need to do um, as Christians is just look at the big picture. Jesus is basically saying at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, look at the big picture. Your kingdom come, God. Your name be glorified. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are big prayers, prayers of God's glory across the whole earth, prayers that aren't just about me and my little situation. And... We need to do that. We need to daily remember the big picture. Think about how that puts into perspective everything going on in our lives. What if everything goes bad in our lives? What if God's given us to be kind of like Job? You know? Like bad, bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. But remember the big picture. Is, God, is, God kingdom, is God's kingdom going to come? Absolutely. Is his will going to be done? Absolutely. On earth as it is in heaven, eventually, yeah, God's going to put everything right. And we can rest in that. No matter what goes on in my life, no matter whether my life is a um, a tragedy or difficulty all the way through, the big picture is settled. Christ has won the victory. Christ has defeated sin and Satan and death. And then we can just breathe a sigh of relief. It's like, God... God's going to put everything right. 
God has made a way for me to be right with Him no matter what happens now. And then as we just reflect on that, the biggest things are taken care of. My soul is right with God. I'm united with Him. And not only that, one day that same defeat that already has happened in our lives as Christians as we place our faith in Christ, that that is going to be applied to everything. And we can just sigh, a sigh of relief and thankfulness and worship to God and just be thankful that we have a redeemer, that we have a victor, that we can enter into his victory, that we can know that through what Christ did, all the things that bother us and all the things that are wrong in the world, they aren't out of his notice and he's working even now to put them right. And that's good news. And it's something to think about. To think about not just once in a while, but daily, really. And and if you think about the Lord's Prayer kind of in those terms, start by just taking your mind off yourself and looking at the big picture about Christ, about who He is, about God, His glory in all the world, and His kingdom coming. And remember that we're only a tiny part, and we aren't the essential part. Jesus is. And the essential part has already won the victory for us. And we can just be thankful. We can be relieved of a little, well, maybe a big burden, a burden that we put on our shoulders. I think sometimes we probably think we're more important than we are to God's kingdom. Right? Where we kind of think, man, I messed up here, I messed up there. But you know what? Ultimately, it all hangs on Jesus. And we can rest in that. And we can enter into his victory through faith. Well, one more thing that leads us to a question. This is a little bit more um, difficult, and there's some disagreement on this, but I'll tell you to the best of my understanding what I think. The third character is is the woman. The woman in this section. We haven't talked about her. It says a few things about her. Let's just look at what it says and then kind of try and put the pieces together. First, in Revelation 12:5, it says, The woman gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, we know that. Then it talks about how her child was caught up to God's throne, and after that, she fled into the wilderness. So, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, she, in verse 12:6, says, there was a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. But then she's given these two wings of, of the eagle so she can fly from the serpent to the wilderness. And then it says, this is in verse 14, to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time, which if that's a year, a year, a year, and half a year, three and a half years, that's the same as 1,260 days. So it's repeating the same thing. But the serpent poured water out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed that river the dragon had poured from his mouth. Okay, a couple Old Testament allusions here again. We don't think about the uh, Egyptians when they were consumed by the Red Sea as being swallowed up by the earth. But actually, actually, that's how the Bible describes it. Whenever the water swept over them, it says they were swallowed up by the earth. It's kind of an interesting thing. We think about it as, oh, they were taken over by the sea. Um, but in a sense, you could see why 
it looks like they were swallowed up by the earth. They, you know, they sunk down to the bottom of the sea. So I think some of this is just a general image for persecution of the of God's people. Um, that you might think at first thing you might think of is Mary, and she's pregnant with Jesus, and Herod tries to kill all the all the male children. Remember that. That's almost fits right. It's like the dragon's pursuing the child so he can kill it and destroy it and eat it. And so I think that's part of the image. But then the second half doesn't really fit with Mary because we don't read of any persecution of Mary being persecuted after Jesus' resurrection. Um, and then there's one more clue. Uh, two more clues, I guess we could say. It says that the woman was clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and her head had a crown of 12 stars. But it also says that the woman is going to have more offspring, and it says who they are in verse 17. In verse 17, it says that her offspring, to make war on the rest of her offspring, and it says who is that? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So her offspring are Christians. Okay. So let's put all these pieces together. It seems that Mary that Mary is not the only thing that this woman is talking about. That it's talking about something bigger. That this woman is a representation of Israel or just the true church in general. And the clues that we have for that is, one, the 12 stars on her... Um, on her, uh, her crown... Remind us of Genesis, where it talks about Israel being 12 stars. You remember Joseph's dream, where he dreams that the 12 stars and the sun and the moon will bow down. Actually, it's 11 stars will bow down to him. And that is an image of his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, 11, he's the 12th. Um, And so it seems like this 12 stars and the sun and the moon are just a representation of the church. So what do we take from this whole section if this is the church? definitely includes Mary, but it's not just Mary. Mary is just a piece of the true church. And and not only are we talking, when we say Israel, we're not just talking about the nation of Israel. We're talking about the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, everyone who's a descendant of Abraham by faith. So all Christians are included in this. So all that is to say this, that this section is saying that the devil was defeated by Jesus. The serpent was destroyed and killed and cast down to the earth. When did that happen? Well, that happened when Jesus really defeated Satan. I'm going to give you a couple verses here. Luke 11. I'm going to read this to you, part of this. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is the finger of God, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he is trust, has trusted and divides the spoil. There Jesus describes himself as the strong man coming and plundering the kingdom of the devil. And that's him defeating these demons here. I'll give you another example that says a very similar thing in Colossians 2. 
You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing, to it, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph, triumphing over them in him. Okay, that last part. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open, open shame by triumphing over them. Triumphing, does that sound similar? Victor, you know, he overcame them. He was the victor against the devil. He disarmed him by canceling the record of debt. The devil can no longer say to the children of God, You're, you deserve punishment because Jesus took the punishment. That the, the demand, that the control that the devil had um, over us to say, to accuse us to God, and that's what the word Satan means as accuser, is gone. That Jesus actually defeated him on the cross. That Jesus really defeated Satan. He really did. And as we read in this passage, that doesn't mean that the devil does nothing now. The devil's angry, but he's defeated. The devil's angry, but defeated. And what's God going to do? He's going to protect his people. That even if the devil pours out a flood, the water, the earth will swallow it up. Even if the devil pursues the church, God will give it wings to fly and it won't be destroyed. What can we take from this? That, one, we rest in what Christ has done, but we also rest in Christ's continual protection of us. That the church is going to continue to go on. The devil is not going to be allowed to destroy God's people. That we're going to be protected through difficulties, and his church won't be destroyed until the end. God's going to protect us all the way through to the end, and then eventually everything will be put right. This relates to the first thing we said. Just look at Christ. Look who he is. Look what he's done on the cross. And just think about it. But it also leads to a second thing that we want to think about. We have faith that Jesus washed away our sin on the cross. But there's a second question. I, I heard this. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a group that does a podcast um, called Knowing Faith. They, uh, they do like books of the Bible they're from Texas, um, two pastors and, and uh, a lady who, um, her name's Jen Wilkin. But anyways, they said this question, and I'm going to quote from them because I really like the way they said it. They said that sometimes we have faith that Christ saved us. And then we ask the question, did the God who saved me, is he able to sustain me? Do I believe he's able to sustain me? And this passage is answering that question. The God who's able to save me, is he also able to sustain me? Will he? And the answer is yes. You know, the answer is yes. I think we all know that, but there's times in our life where we doubt that, isn't it? You know Jesus died for your sin, but then you get into a struggle and a trial, and you're doubting. Man, I just don't know if God's going to come through with this money or with... um, this particular difficult health situation or relationship thing or church thing or politics thing, whatever it is that is bothering you, we know that he saved us, but we doubt that he's going to sustain us through it. We begin to not trust. And the reality is that we can trust him. 
the God who saved you will sustain you. He's going to help you in whatever situation you're in right now. And I'm sure every single one of you has a different, difficult situation. God's going to sustain you. The one who saved you, who defeated the devil, who crushed the head of the serpent, that same one is not going to let the, the devil come and devour you. He's going to keep you. And so we can be thankful and we can trust and we can just look at Christ and just remember who he is and just live in light of that. Jesus really did defeat the devil. And he really is going to put everything right. And for now, there may be some pushback. There may be some persecution. There may be trials and there will be trials and difficulties. But even in that, he's going to sustain you through to the end. The battle's already won. Jesus won it. And if we have faith in him, we can enter in and be victors with him and trust that he's going to keep us to the end. All right, I'm going to tell you one more illustration, history, a history illustration to kind of tie all this together. It reminds me of uh, World War II when we dropped the atomic bomb on uh, Japan and it was very clear that we had won the war. We had very, very clear that the war was over. But it wasn't clear to Japan (laughs) for a while. Um, And so it actually took longer than you might think for Japan to surrender after we dropped the atomic bomb. Uh, at that time, there was actually a lot of POWs, that means prisoners of war, American soldiers, and sometimes civilians who had been captured by the Japanese and were in these prison camps. And so I'm going to kind of give it, give this illustration, and it's, this, these are really true events, but I'm going to connect it to the, to the story we just talked about, about just believing and looking and believing what Christ did and the, that the victory is real and how that changes even your circumstances. Uh, even if your circumstances don't change. Okay, I'll tell you the history, and then I'll come back and I'll connect it to um, the spiritual application. So at the time, at the end of World War II, there was between 12,000 and 20,000 American POWs in Japan. We don't know exactly. I saw different numbers. I couldn't pin down exactly how many there were. And these POWs, I'm going to tell uh, from a specific camp um, that I read an account of, some of them heard that cholera had hit Hiroshima, which is the city we dropped the bomb on, that no one can come in or go out, that there's a, something went bad there, maybe cholera happened. Um, but at this time, the Japanese did not want the POWs to be able to testify to their war crimes, so they actually issued a decree to all the commanders to kill, all, to kill every single POW on August 22nd. They were going to kill all the POWs, which was against the Geneva Convention that everyone agreed. We're going to, when we fight each other in war, we're not going to do super cruel things to one another. We're just going to fight like men, I guess. (laughs) Um, Well, they had already broken so many of those rules, they decided we'll just kill all the Japanese. Or the Japanese said, we'll just kill all the American POWs. So they had set a day and issued the order, August 22nd. Well, some of the POWs had been in prison for years, um, shipwrecked or captured in, in a battle, 
and they're there in Japan. And it was a bad situation. So many of them were below 100 pounds. They were malnourished. It looked a lot like a concentration camp um, in terms of the conditions. And one POW gives an account on August 15th. They were walking through the POW camp, and they were very thin, and they, they were under 100 pounds. And there was a supervisor named Agua. Agawa, sorry. And as they were walking by, they saw this supervisor who was one of the Japanese soldiers, and he was not a mean person, he was not a threatening person, and he would watch them when they went and worked in the potato fields. They made the POWs work, and they never were scared of this guy. But he ran up to this guy and pulled out his club, and he hit him in the face, and he was just shocked. Why would he do that? I don't know why he would do that. It's just so out of character. But what he didn't know was that they had already dropped the bomb and that they knew basically that it was over. It seems like maybe what happened was just frustration, just taking out the frustration of we lost on this person who was a representative, an American soldier. He didn't know that Japan had been defeated and just surrendered unconditionally that day on August 15th. They had surrendered unconditionally and they had no idea. They didn't even know that the atomic bomb existed. They did hear this. Imagine this from a Japanese soldier said this. A single plane flew over and a whole city disappeared. That's kind of the way they viewed it. So they actually moved the POWs into the remote mountains and they started walking them into the woods each day. Just walking them into the remote woods. Which they had actually heard about this kill all, kill all order, one of the officers had told one of the Americans in the POW. And so it seemed like they were just preparing for that. Just, oh, let's get everybody into the woods and we'll stand them in a circle and then we'll walk back and we'll do it again and then we'll do it again just so they're kind of ready to do this. So they were prepared. They thought they were going to be killed by the, the Japanese. But then on August 20th, so this is after they had surrendered almost a week after Japan had unconditionally surrendered, the POWs are still in the camp. And on August 20th, a single plane flew over as the men were bathing in the river, and they saw on the bottom of the wings stars, and they knew it was an American plane. And there was a light on the bottom of the plane blinking and flashing. And one of the soldiers was a communication officer who could read Morse code. And then he shouted out, the war is over. And some of the men sobbed and some of them cheered. And then they that's when they realized they were free. The war had already been won. And they didn't know. And he dropped a note that he'll be back with supplies. He had seen them. So at that moment, when he saw them, the Japanese knew we can't kill these guys anymore because they'll know we did it because they saw all these POWs you know, cheering and, and, and waving their hands. And so they did. They brought back supplies, which they desperately needed. One of them, uh, yeah, I won't go into all the details. I'll read you just an account of one of the soldiers. The emotional impact. Here's what he said. One American soldier said it in his mind. He just repeated these two words to themselves over and over. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. Yeah, pretty emotional. Um, 
even more emotional if you read the whole account of all their, their life and things going on in the POW camps and how hard it was. So, why do I share all that? Well, I just give it as an illustration, one more illustration of where we are, you know, where we are in a war, right? Sin and, and Satan and the devil have been defeated, just like when they dropped the bomb, and it's over. But not everybody is totally freed yet. The people that were sick, like one of the soldiers had beriberi, which is a really bad disease, um, and he was very sick. He thought he was going to die. He was so sick. Um, and he was losing weight, and he said he could squeeze his leg, and when he pulled his hand back, his handprint would still be on his leg. Um, and I'm sure some of the nurses know what that is, but he was really sick. But he was the one repeating in his mind, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. So what happened? Just like the POWs, the devil's angry that he's defeated. And there might be some persecution, but not ultimate persecution. Just like they would hit those prisoners, but they wouldn't kill them because they knew they'd get in trouble. The devil may persecute us, but ultimately he can't kill our soul, right? We're ultimately redeemed. Christ won the victory. No matter what, even if we're martyred, we won't die, just like David was talking about. Even in death, we won't die. And so we're, the ultimate victory has been won. And we didn't realize we were a part of it until we heard about Christ. The war's over. He won. You know, one, just like one plane dropped one bomb, it's like one man, God, the God man, won the war for everybody. And what happened to the POWs? You know, they were moving, they were doing the same thing. They were in that same mountain camp and it seemed so fearful. Like they were going out into the woods and they were just scared. But it's the same with us. We can, our fear is removed knowing that they're defeated. Like sin really is defeated. The devil really is defeated. Ultimately, the devil is not allowed to harm us ultimately. He may persecute us, but he can't kill our soul. He can't take us away from God. Nothing can separate us from Christ. I mean, in reality, you know, we could say the same thing in our mind. I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. So all this is to say, just to wrap up this whole sermon, is just a reminder just to look at Christ, look what he's done, and just remember. Remember that in Christ we're free, that sin was nailed to the cross, that we're children of God now, that we're entering into the victory he won for us, that Jesus really defeated Satan's sin and death. Oh, just a couple of verses here just that's saying the same thing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being killed. For your sake, all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things were more than conquerors or more than victors. By our own performance, 
No, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All that is to say this. Just think about Christ. Think about what he's done. Think about the position you're in, that you really are united with Christ in his victory, that he won, that he he, he nailed your sins to the cross, that he defeated sin and Satan and death. And, you know, we're not out of the camp yet, so to speak. We're still sick. We're still, our bodies are still eventually going to die. We're all going to die unless Jesus returns. But everything's different because we know, ultimately, the victory's won. Jesus defeated. Jesus won for us on our behalf the victory. And we can be thankful. We don't have to be fearful. And that, and though like those prisoners, they didn't get out of the camp that day, it actually took time. But everything changed. All the circumstances were different, even though they were all still the same. And it's the same in our lives. As we look at what Christ has done, it n- doesn't change a lot of a lot of the things physically. They might not change right away, but it changes everything. A totally different perspective. And so the sermon today is just a reminder what Christ has done for us. The victory he really won and how as we think about that, that affects our lives. And so, why don't we pray together one more time and then if anyone has comments or questions. Father, we just are thankful. Um, Would you help these things be real to us? We need help. Um, We want to live in light of what you've done, Jesus, for us. I pray you'd help us as we pray each day and um, meditate on you and who, who you are that we could just look at the big picture and what you've done and where we are and that our lives would look different in light of um, in light of that and not get so focused on the, the little things all around us um, we're thankful that you love us and we're thankful for what you did for us on the cross I pray you'd make it real to us and um, if there's any the especially the kids who don't know you, just that they would come to really trust you and trust in what you've done and accomplished personally for themselves. And we just hand that to you. And we love you and we praise you. Amen.